long way in this series as I watch those words go by every week. I think of everything that we've been teaching in these weeks. You have a series of sermons out there that you can go back to now and just re-listen to those. I feel like if you did that, you could articulate what your beliefs are at a pretty high level. We came to this last section on the Holy Spirit. We slowed way down because we realized that most of our churches in our tradition are not teaching much on the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to finish the baptism of the Spirit this morning. Next week we're going to talk about the filling of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about the sealing of the Spirit. We're going to move to the last lines of the Creed and we'll be right at Christmas. By the way, welcome to November. Welcome to the first Sunday of November. This year's flying now, isn't it? Uh, even though uh, the Baptist tradition is the predominant tradition in the room, Cornerstone rejects the Baptist teaching of cessationism. So let me tell you what cessationism is. Cessationism is the teaching that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased with the passing of the original apostles. Instead... What we believe at Cornerstone is that the Holy Spirit is still gifting God's people for service. Last week, Jeremy spoke for almost an hour. Uh, Now, Jeremy spoke robustly last week about the gifts of the Spirit and explained about what the gifts of the Spirit are. Did a great job, explained the fruit of the Spirit the week before that. And he articulated, and I want to say it again, because if you don't read this every day and you're not in these everyday conversations, then things can happen really quick in this room and, and, and it kind of just goes really fast. Those lists of gifts that are articulated in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are not comprehensive lists. They're not saying these are all the gifts of the Spirit. This is all the Spirit can do. Put him in this little box. He can do these ten things for you. That's a misreading of that. The, the, the gifts that are being listed are just examples. Paul is talking to a specific audience in Romans. He's talking to a specific audience in Corinthians. And he's saying to them, these are some of the things that need to happen in this congregation. These are some of the things that... Holy Spirit is doing in this present con- congregation, and he uses those as examples. We know they're not comprehensive because none of the lists match. When he, when, when he starts writing to the Ephesians, Paul will talk about gifts, and it sounds like they're pastors and teachers, and, and it's a whole other kind of concept that's being laid out there. And so we understand that Paul is using illustrations He's using examples to explain to them so the Holy Spirit works through your life so that you can build up the body of Christ. And it looks like this. And he gives them examples of what it might look like. But whatever it is, it is supernatural ability being given to each believer to do for the body, the collective church, whatever the body needs to be edified, and whatever the body needs to carry out its mission of making disciples here at home, a little further, and then all the way around the world. Things are different, and we have to recognize that things don't stay the same. We live in a very unique uh, bubble of the world, and in a very unique moment in the world, uh, where English is such a predominant language, I have literally traveled the world my whole adult life. I speak muy poquito Spanish, but I speak a lot of English, and I've never had a trouble going anywhere in the world. And uh, it it doesn't matter. If you want to go somewhere, go. Somebody will speak English when you get there, I promise you. I promise you, they will. You just, wherever you're at, stop, ask for help. Do you speak English? Someone will always walk and say, yeah, what can I help you with? I'm trying to find the Marriott. Let me get you to help me find a tech. Somebody will always help you. And it's a very unique dynamic in history. And in the modern American church, where the whole modern American church is speaking English, one common language, we don't need miraculous tongues for people to hear the gospel. You understand my voice, right? You understand my English. I know it's a little Texan, but you get what I'm saying and you comprehend it and we don't need a miracle for you to hear the gospel. 
I believe, though, that if we needed a miracle for you to hear the gospel, God's able to do one in this room so that you could. If the context were different, I think, Mom, you illustrated this very well in the podcast that you guys just cut and was released about how you've even experienced that. And we've seen it happen in our own ministry. We don't need supernatural tongues right here in this room. I'll tell you what the modern church does need. Preschool volunteers. Preschool volunteers, what I'm saying is I'm talking about church members supernaturally overcoming any aversion to spending an hour and a half with God's little lambs. If you say, I'm just not wired that way, you're getting the point now. The spiritual gifting is God doing through you what doesn't come naturally. That's why it's a spiritual gift. It's Holy Spirit doing something in you and maybe, uh, let's just say that, may, so maybe Jeff, you have a musical thing in you. It's a musical gene in you. It's a passion. Well, in that case, I think the Holy Spirit takes it and takes it to another level and gives you that passion, not just to use it for making money or making a name, but gives you that passion to use it for the glory of God, to bring praise to Him and help the people of God worship together. That's using things in a, in a spiritual way. I'll tell you what the modern church needs. It needs people who will say to the Holy Spirit of God, I'm here, whatever the church needs, yes is my answer. And if I don't have any ability to do it, I trust that the the Almighty Creator of the heaven and earth can empower me to do it. I trust that through your Spirit you can feel any shortcoming or lack of my ability and give me incredible ability to do it. I'll tell you what the modern church needs. People who are willing to give sacrificially. The whole American dream is built on you being comfortable. That is not Bible, and that is not Christianity. Christianity is about you using your resources to further the kingdom of God and to make disciples till Jesus comes. And even in your will, you need to be leaving something for the kingdom of God. You need to be leaving the church a gift. I'd love to talk to you all about this kind of stuff for hours. About structuring our life around what we really believe. I'll tell you what the modern church needs. It needs men and women who say, I'm being discipled and my goal is to give my, uh, my, my mind, my hands, my voice, my life to the Spirit of God because I want to be used of God to make disciples. Ladies and gentlemen, do not go to heaven without making a disciple, please. Please do not leave this life until you have discipled someone to take your place. That's the way Christianity dies. And what would be awesome is if you'd make a couple this year and a couple next year and a couple the next year and and then those other ones will be reproducing and then your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and before you know it, you've got a whole spiritual family that you've been a part of producing followers of Jesus Christ. Leave a legacy. The way you leave a legacy is you yield your present life to the Holy Spirit of God and say, I am yours, use me, God, for your purpose. Now, two weeks ago, I began a discussion on the Pentecostal teaching of the baptism of the Spirit. Now, this sermon without that sermon is going to be rough. And I trust that there will be some in the room who haven't heard that sermon. You must go listen to it. It's two weeks ago. It's the setup to this message. And uh, in this whole discussion, both then and this morning, uh, I want to build on what's being said. I've showed you the verses that the Pentecostals, the Charismatic Assemblies of God, et al., they are using to build this doctrine, this teaching of, they call it, the baptism of the Spirit. At times, two weeks ago, I argued for their position. At times, I've argued against their position. And I know many of you are saying, Pastor, just tell us what to believe. That's what I'm not going to do. If two groups of Christians can read the same verses and come up with two different opinions, what I'm going to do is show you the material. I will tell you what I believe, but I want God's Holy Spirit to lead you to your belief. I believe He's capable, and I don't need to speak for Him in that way, in a dictatorial way, 
But I'm presenting several sides of an argument. And for those of you that were nervous a few weeks ago, I'll help you out just a little bit more. Uh, The Pentecostal teaching, the charismatic teaching of the baptism of the Spirit is that it's a two-part process. You get saved, and then you muddle along for a while. And then later on, you have a second work of grace called the baptism of the Spirit and probably come forward to church service, elder pastor lay hands on you, and you receive the holy, the baptism of the Spirit, which is proven, evidenced by speaking in tongues in the assembly. Okay? Now that is their teaching. It's kind of a two-part uh, paradigm for Christianity. Now, I'm putting forth this morning that my present understanding of what Pentecost was Acts chapter number 2. What Pentecost was, was a historic event that launched the new covenant fulfillment that the prophets talked about in the Old Testament. Ezekiel and Isaiah and even, even Moses is talking about there's coming a time when God's going to do something in your heart. It's not about physical circumcision. It's not about being genealogically Abraham's or DNA Abraham's children. But God's going to do a work in the hearts of people, even the Gentiles. And He's going to put His Spirit in them. And it's going to be a game changer for the people of God. Well, Acts chapter number 2 When Pentecost happened, it was that game changer. It was a historic event where Jesus had been telling his disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Spirit. I'm leaving, but I'm going to be with you. I'm leaving, but I'm going to be in you in spirit form. And he kept his promise, and in Acts chapter 2, it happened. My understanding is that Pentecost is not an event that's going to be repeated. However, it is an event that's still affecting our lives this morning. Because of what happened on Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2, the dynamic for us is completely different than it was for the people in, in living in the Old Testament. So that 2,000 years later, Pentecost is important to us because we look back at the timeline and say there's where everything changed for the church. There's where everything changed for us. And that new thing God said He was going to do, He has now kept His promise and He is doing it. What I don't expect... This morning, as I don't expect wind to blow through here, although I have been preaching in Asia, uh, Mom, as you said on the podcast, I had several experiences where I've been preaching and, and banging away, and, and some of you were in the room. I don't know, those four or five of our men were with us in that meeting. It's packed wall to wall. I'm just banging away with everything I've got. Sweats fly, an interpreter can barely keep up. And I get right down to the invitation moment and all the windows in the church blow out. And the shutters start banging like a haunted house. And you're like, what is going on? I have no idea what's going on. But it looks a lot like what happened in Acts chapter number 2 when a wind blew through the building and people said something supernatural is about to happen here. And I said, if you're ready to receive Christ, stand to your feet. And hundreds of people rose and received Christ as their Savior. Whatever happened, God was saving people that night. Now you call it whatever you want to call it. You say, well, why doesn't it happen here in America? Because TikTok's more exciting than church in America. That's why. It's a cultural thing. We've got a cultural problem. We've got a church deadness problem. We, we've, got, we've, got, we've, got, we've got issues that are not allowing the same type of things to happen. Or let's say it another way, maybe they need to experience something like that in order for that belief to come to culmination. However it needs to happen, let's let God be in charge of that. And let's don't try to micromanage God and say, God, you have to do it this way, or God, you have to do it this way. That's way above our pay grade to be talking uh, like, like that. I don't expect wind. I don't expect little flames of fire to sit on everybody's head this morning. Some of you use enough hairspray to incinerate your hair anyway. So yeah, we don't expect little flames of fire. Uh, uh, but we do experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit this morning. The big issue between those of you who grew up in the Baptist tradition, Church of Christ, uh, maybe Lutheran, Presbyterian, versus those who grew up in the traditional Pentecostal Assembly of God, charismatic groups, the real difference between the two groups this morning is this. 
How do you interpret what the apostles had in view when they wrote the New Testament? Did the apostles have in view a two-step process for every Christian? This is what this group teaches over here. That you get saved and later you're going to have a second work of grace and receive the baptism of the Spirit. And then you're fully empowered for whatever God wants to do. This group over here, which is most of your tradition, is saying, when you receive Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit came into your life at that moment. And now it's a process of getting to know Him and yielding your life to Him. And I'll talk more about that next week in the filling of the Spirit. The big question, though, is what did the apostles have in view? A two-step process? Or a one-step process whereby we are empowered with the Spirit at the moment of salvation. So let's see if we can unpack that just a little bit. And let's talk about Pentecost then and Pentecost now. Let's talk about what Pentecost meant for the first Christians and the first church. And then we can talk a little more about what it means to us today. So Pentecost then, as I said, I believe that was the launch of the New Covenant. I think God had promised, this is what I'm going to do. Boom. Now, there it is. And he actually fulfilled everything he said he was going to do. So let's go back to Acts chapter number 2. Let me read a piece of this for you. Here's what I want you to know. The people you're about to read about that are having the Holy Spirit experience are already believers. These are already those who've been following Christ. They've assembled together but they have not been permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we know this because of the upper room discourse, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, where Jesus says to them, I'm leaving, but you've got to be indwelt and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Tarry at Jerusalem until it happens, and then go to all the world and make disciples and preach the gospel. He's giving those very clear, big commission, great commission proclamations to them. Already saved, but in some bizarre way that we can't explain because our dynamic's different, they don't have a permanent indwelling of the Spirit. And Acts 2 is the moment where the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. And what happens is they start speaking in tongues. People start hearing the gospel in their own language. and, And unbelievers are now coming to this and they're hearing these people talk and the unsaved are saying we're hearing the gospel in our own language and we're from different countries we speak different languages and then another group of people are are watching this and saying these people are all drunk that's exactly what they said the behavior was so bizarre they said we've never seen something like the only things we've seen look like this a bunch of drunk people babbling and gibbering and craziness These people are drunk, and yet it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. And so, which I guess doesn't stop people, but uh, Peter stands up to speak. And here's what Peter says, Acts 2.14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. The people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only 9 in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by Joel the prophet. Watch the quotation marks come in your Bible. He's going to quote Joel now. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will Prophesy. Let me jump to 21 for sake of time. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a dramatic thing. Peter said the prophet Joel's being fulfilled before your eyes. And here's what Joel said. And here it is. Now contrast that with the old days. In the old days, the Spirit of God empowered only a select few people. And it was not permanent. Uh, the Spirit would come upon priests. Prophets and kings and judges in particular. Uh, but, but the prophets told us a day is coming when it's not going to be an elite few that have an, an experience with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be every follower of, of Jesus Christ. Every one who is a part of the people of God. And in Acts chapter number 1, Jesus' disciples didn't 
have the Spirit in this permanent way because nobody had the Spirit in this permanent way. So when they received the Spirit in Acts chapter number 2, Pentecost became a historical event. Let's call it a one-off event that said, okay, God kept His promise. There it is. In the same way that we don't need to sacrifice Jesus this morning. Why? He's already been sacrificed. That was a good enough. In the same way we don't need the Holy Spirit to fall. He's already come to inhabit the people of God. It was a historic one-off event. Not something we're trying to repeat every Sunday. We're not saying, God, you know, we need Pentecost to come again. Now, what we do need is maybe some fresh relationship with the Holy Spirit, but that's more next week's sermon on the filling of the Spirit. Pentecost was about the first time coming of the Holy Spirit to create a new age and a new people. Now God's people are not Abraham's DNA. Now God's people are made up of all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles. This is a big deal. All right, now, so let's talk about Pentecost now. So now the Spirit of God has inhabited every believer, Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women alike, rich and poor alike. And this is all possible because of what Jesus did on Calvary and through the resurrection. And later, 40 days later, because of what happened 50 days later, what happened at Pentecost, today he says, now you can all prophesy. Why? You all have the Spirit of God. See, over there it was just some priests in the Old Testament. But now all of God's people have the Holy Spirit. So now if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have God's Spirit and you can all prophesy. Men and women. You see, what he's saying is, in the New Covenant, we are all priests of God. You don't have to come to me and say, Pastor, w- would you pray uh, uh, on my behalf to God? You can pray directly to God. You don't have to go through an intermediary. Your, your intermediary is Jesus Christ who's opened the way. And what the book of Hebrews says is you can boldly enter into the throne of God. Why? You're a priest. And just the way those priests used to go into the holy place where God's presence was, God's presence is here now for all of you. And you can just boldly engage God in a conversation without having to go through any robed clerics. You can connect directly to God. Further, uh, you are kings and queens. You, you are royalty in God's eye. You are a royal chosen generation. And you are kings and queens living out the rule of King Jesus in your life. You are ambassadors representing the government of Jesus Christ. You are vassal kings looking to the great suzerain king and you're saying, I'm a under ruler in your kingdom and I am living out your rule in my life. Let me say it another way. You are living temples. Uh, Making a pilgrimage to a building means absolutely nothing except for nostalgia. You may want to drive by the place you were saved. You may want to go with us on a trip to Israel and see, you know, Temple Mount. and, and And it's fantastic. It's very nostalgic. It'll stir your heart. It may even change your life. But what I'm saying is the building is no longer the thing. Now you're the thing. You are the building where God lives. You are the living icon, the living temple inhabited by the Spirit of Almighty God. And furthermore, the Spirit has through us and through the resurrection, the Spirit has begun the restoration of creation. The new creation has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new creation has already begun in our lives. We live in a completely, entirely different age of human history. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, Good morning, Holy Spirit. How are you this morning? And you begin to talk to Him because He's living in you. And you feel God at work in your life. And you hear the Spirit's voice talking to you when you open up the Word of God. And when you pray, listen, you need to thank God that it's the way it is. Because it wasn't always this way. Generations back before Calvary, it was not this way. They did not feel that abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. They did not hear that voice. They had to have a prophet come to them and say, Thus saith the Lord. 
he had the Spirit, and he would speak for God. But now the Spirit's in you. I mean, it's a wholly different dynamic. It has not been this way except for the last part of human history. When you believed on Jesus, he saved you, and he baptized you in the Spirit. Now, that's the right language, and I spent a whole sermon two weeks ago to explain this. Baptism of the Spirit's not found in the Scripture. Baptized in the Spirit is. And even where there's one verse I'll show you in a minute, but the word uh, with, in, interchangeable in Greek. All the other references are Jesus will baptize you in the Spirit, not the Spirit will baptize you into what we don't know. Jesus will baptize you in the Spirit. Remember the prophecies about Jesus. John said, I baptize you with water, but he that comes after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Something completely different. He will baptize you in the Spirit. Now here's what Paul believes. Paul believes that when you believed on Jesus, he saved you and he baptized you in the Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, which can, by can also mean in in the Greek. Same word. Matter of fact, some translations use in right here. For we were all baptized in one spirit or by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. All right, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is a connecting commonality that we all have this whole passage as jeremy articulated last week is not really about spiritual gifts at all it's really about unity of one body that's really what the passage is about and what paul means by being filled with the spirit in this passage is articulated in the previous verse let me read the verse above it first corinthians 12 12 just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And then in the next verse, he'll go on to say, and it's the Spirit that has unified you into that body. The Spirit is the unifier of believers. We are united in one body because we all have the Holy Spirit living in us from the moment of our salvation. Now, I've told you already, this Holy Spirit and Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably in the text. So let me read Romans 8. Because Paul will actually make his case to the Romans that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have salvation. So watch this, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. See, we live our life in a completely different realm that we are born again. We live our whole life in the Spirit now, not in the flesh. You're in a whole different realm, Paul says. You're no longer in the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now, I don't know of a clearer verse in the whole New Testament about the teaching of the Holy Spirit than that. You have the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation, and if you say, well, I just don't think I have the Spirit of God, then you're not born again. That's what Paul is articulating here. Because the work of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we've shifted from our old lives after the flesh to living lives now in the Spirit, you live in a whole new realm now. Uh, let me call that realm the kingdom of God. You live in the kingdom of God. Yep, you're still in Texas, you're still in America, you're still on planet Earth, but spiritually you've been moved over into a new circumstance called the kingdom of God. And you live your life in a whole new supernatural spiritual realm that the unsaved world knows nothing about. And it's, it's almost a little sci-fi right here. It's almost a little fantasy feeling right here, but it's Bible. And, and, and it's say you, you operate on a whole other level in a whole other world with a whole other power that the rest of the world doesn't get. And it is the Spirit that is doing all of this supernatural work. God's kingdom now, this is what's important now. Let me shift this a little different direction. God's kingdom then is comprised of Jews and Gentiles now. I'm going to read the verses in just a moment. Males and females, rich and poor, every color, every creed, every race, every tribe, all different kinds of people, and any other category that humanity wants to divide us into. 
God has taken all of the categories and, and, and all of these divisions that humanity uses to divide us up and God has eradicated all the categories and eradicated all the divisions that are against the heart of God and that are against the, the working and the heart of the Holy Spirit. And God has said, get rid of the categories. And that's why Paul would write to the European Christians in, in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one, one body, one people of God in Christ Jesus. And any teaching about the Holy Spirit that is based on dividing Christians into groups and pitting one group against another, that teaching needs to be called into question. Now, I've interviewed over these weeks uh, several people in our congregation who grew up in a charismatic or Pentecostal tradition, and they have related to me, not my words, but their words, they grew up in the tradition, they have related to me how hurtful this teaching has been to them. Uh, they'll say things like this, well, I grew up in Pentecostal tradition, I grew up in the charismatic tradition, and, and I always felt like a second-class citizen, or I felt inferior because other people were speaking in tongues, and I didn't speak in tongues, and what I felt like it did in my charismatic or Pentecostal or assembly of God upbreeding is it divided the church into cliques. It divided it into the haves and the have-nots. And in the church, you had the people who did speak in tongues and the people who didn't speak in tongues and the people who spoke in tongues were like the spiritual elite in the church and the people who didn't speak in tongues were like, well, there's something broken about us. We're kind of second-class, inferior believers in the church. And, and what I'm trying to say to you is, is Paul's point is exactly the opposite of that. Paul's point is that all believers have the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked through... 1 Corinthians recently, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is arguing this thesis. That is the thesis that's being answered. The question that's being answered by the book of 1 Corinthians is this question. Because the Corinthians are writing to Paul and proclaiming publicly, we are pneumaticos, we are spirit people, we are highly spiritual people. And, and, and you'd say, well, how do you know you're highly spiritual people? And they had a couple of answers. They said, because we have all of this wisdom and we speak in tongues. Now, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is Paul absolutely destroying that argument. I mean, he's destroying that whole argument. They thought because they spoke in tongues in the assembly. And what Paul ultimately concludes in 1 Corinthians is there's nothing wrong with tongues. And that's perfect for you to do at home in your private prayer. That is Paul's conclusion. Forbid not speak in tongues. Just not in this room. Because in this room it just makes more confusion. It doesn't edify the body. So use it in a different way. And that's Paul's conclusion. They're using it in the church and they're saying, well, see, we have the Spirit. I speak in tongues, so I have received the baptism of the Spirit. Paul destroyed that with the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is not, yes, speak in tongues in the assembly. Paul is saying to them, tongues is not a litmus test for whether you have the Spirit or not. Tongues is not a benchmark of whether you're more spiritual or less spiritual than someone else. And you may be saying, well, pastor, how do you know that's true? Because in the book of 1 Corinthians, he calls them little carnal babies. Carnal babies. Who's he speaking to? The tongue talkers. The people who think they're so spiritual. They think they're so spiritual, they're actually writing to Paul and saying, Paul, you're not spiritual. And Paul's like, dude, I'm the one who brought you the gospel. You people would be lost with no spirit had I not brought the gospel and proclaimed it to you and you believed on Christ and received the spirit. Now who's taught you all this crazy stuff? And that's really kind of what's happening in 1 Corinthians. There's not a single command to seek a subsequent baptism of the spirit after your salvation. This is what I want you to lock on to. There's not a single command in any of Paul's 13 or 14 letters, depending on who you think wrote Hebrews, there's not a single command in any of Paul's letters. There's not a single command in any of Peter's letters. There's no commands to get the baptism of the Spirit in any of James', in James letters. Uh, there's no command to get the baptism of the Spirit in any of John's letters. There's not one command 
to wait on God, wait on God, fast and pray, have your pastor lay hands on you, and then be baptized in the Spirit. It's nowhere in your Bible. And if the correct paradigm for believers after the resurrection is to get saved, live for a while, then get the baptism of the Spirit in a two-step function where the pastor lay hands and you get the baptism and speak in tongues. If that were the paradigm for New Testament Christianity, would it not be reasonable for all of us in this room to expect there to be a whole bunch of teaching in the New Testament that says, get the baptism of the Spirit, get the baptism of the Spirit, you know your pastor lay get the baptism of the Spirit, and you get the baptism of the Spirit. You would expect that to be all over the New Testament. Instead, here is what you find in the New Testament. Paul writes that the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is God's fruit in you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Any of that stuff ever show up in your life? Yeah, it does. And, And it's not generated by you. It's generated by Holy Spirit bringing forth the personality of God to bear in your life. And your job is to let go of your life and let the personality of God start to be dominant. Does that make sense? Let him start to be the dominant personality in your life. You'll never stop being you, but be more like God version of you. That's the point. Now Paul says this is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll have God's fruit in your life. You know what James said? James said the evidence of having the Holy Spirit in your life was good works. Matter of fact, James is really bold. He said, if you don't have good works, your faith's dead. I don't even know, I don't know what's going on with you. Remember that? So for James, James says, if you have the Holy Spirit, we'll expect to see something in your life different. Some works of God bubbling up in your life. You know what John said? John said, the evidence that you're God's child and the Holy Spirit's in you is the evidence of love in your life. This John's a big word, love. Now, that's a pretty cool list right there. You say, how do I know how the Holy Spirit? Well, you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit, some good works, and you're going to start loving instead of hating everybody. That's good evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you and that you are a child of God and you are being transformed. Here's what I want you to see with that list right there. No one, after the book of Acts, is writing in your Bible that to have the Spirit, you need to speak in tongues. No one is writing that. They're writing this instead. Fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit will be there, but the fruit of the Spirit will be evident. Love will be evident. Good works will be evident. That is the proof that you're, you're God's top. Now, I want to be careful because I can argue both sides of this to some degree. I'm not speaking against tongues. Tongues are in the Bible. And you can't deny it. They're there. And they're there in multiple different contexts, and it looks different in Acts than it looks in 1 Corinthians. It seems to be two different things. It's there, it's complicated, it's not totally clear, but what I want to say about tongues without having to split the hair is, tongues is not evidence that you're mature. Tongues is never listed in the Bible as, here's the high watermark of Christian maturity, you will speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians is proof. That that is not the case. So let's talk about the turning point in church history. The book of Acts is incredibly important to us. Mom, you and I talked a lot about the book of Acts this past week. It's incredibly important to us because the book of Acts tells us the stories that become the turning point from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. See, in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're still under the Old Covenant. Christ doesn't die till the end's not resurrected and ascended and the Holy Spirit doesn't come to the book of Acts. So really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are kind of the bridge between the Old and the New. The New Covenant's really Acts going forward this way, but Acts itself is the hinge. It's a transitional book, and you'll see a lot of things in the book of Acts that are something new or one-off events because they're bringing in this new thing that God is doing. Let Let me take your mind back to the book of Acts for a moment. The original church was in Jerusalem. You all get that. The original church was Jesus' apostles and disciples that he had directly made. The original church was comprised of entirely Jews. The original church still had the brokenness of the Jewish culture that it had brought into the Jewish church. This means that the early church, the Jewish church, the early church, the first church, the only church, the early church struggled 
to answer basic questions about whether non-Jews could even be saved. The early church is struggling to answer questions about, okay, and if a non-Jew can get saved, then how do they get saved? What does their path to salvation look like to become a follower of Jesus? We know what our path looked like, but what does a non-Jew path to Christ look like? So because all the first believers were basically Jews, they were teaching and they were believing that you first had to become a Jew in order to become a follower of Jesus. That the path to Christianity was first you become a Jew, because that's the way we did it, and then you become a Christian. That's the way we did it. And they were thinking everybody had to go through that same multi-step process that they went through. That's why so often in the New Testament, circumcision is mentioned as much as grace. I mean, that's curious, isn't it? You say, why? Because the big debate in the early church was, how do these Gentiles become followers of Christ now? Do they need to be Jews, i.e. get circumcised, so that they can become followers of Christ because then they can become like us culturally and now we'll take them on into Christianity? And everybody was thinking, well, that sounds like a normative process. Let's make everybody, they have to follow the feast, they have to wash their hands, they have to get circumcised, they have to be Jews, and then we can turn them into good Christians. Same mistake the Baptist missionaries make when they go overseas. They think they've got to turn the Mexicans and the Puerto Ricans and the Indians into little white Baptists, put them in a three-piece European suit and a tie in the middle of the jungle in order for them to be good followers of Christ. Nonsense. Nonsense. Let them be who they are. They can come to Christ just the way they are. And that's the conclusion the early church is just about to reach. Jewish culture was built on segregation. They did not mix with other people. Is everybody with me? Jewish culture is built on segregation and deeply held racism. And now they're trying to figure out how will this play out under the new covenant in this new thing that Jesus has done it, it, it called a church. Well, Acts chapter 8 is that beginning story. Let me read it real quickly. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people in Samaria had accepted the word of God, Samaritans are not Jews or half Jews, okay? But they're not purebred Jews. They're those other people, okay? Not us. When the apostles in Jerusalem, Mother Church, heard that the Samaritans, half Gentile, had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when Peter and John arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now let me unpack this. Outside of Acts 2, where the people were already believers... Outside of Acts 2, as the coming of the Spirit, Acts 8 is the only example in your Bible of a two-stage process where people were saved but had not yet received the Holy Spirit and it happened in a separate step. Listen carefully. There are 22 stories of conversions in the book of Acts by my counting. Hopefully I got that right, but if not, you're still going to get the point. There are 22 stories of conversion in the book of Acts. This is the only one where there is a two-stage event. In those 22 stories of conversion, people speak in tongues in only three of the 22 stories. Now, using basic math, which is not easy for me, the most normative stories are the ones where believers did not speak in tongues. Just using basic math. It happened only three times out of 22 stories. And you're saying, well, why is this one story in the Bible where these Gentiles are receiving the word of God, but they need the Jews to come so that they can receive the Holy Spirit? Why is that in our Bible? You just articulated the reason it's in the Bible. This story is in the Bible precisely because it is a one-off story. Because this is the first time 
that the gospel has jumped outside of Israel and has gone in mass to a Gentile group of people and God is trying to show the Gentiles and the Jews that racism is dead. And he's not going to let the Samaritans take off and start making disciples without recognizing the authority of the mother church in Jerusalem and that the Jews are united with them. Does that make sense? And he's not going to let the Jews take off and do their own thing where we've got a Jewish Christianity and a Gentile Christianity. See, the Catholic Church did this. There's Eastern and Western. They split the church over stuff like this. And the Holy Spirit was saying, we're going to stop the split before it happens, and we're going to unify everybody together and say, it doesn't matter, male or female, bond or free, slave or rich, poor, doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile, I'm going to force a scenario, and I'm going to record it in Scripture so that everyone knows that when salvation goes to the Gentiles, I'm going to force the Jews to go acknowledge, these are your brothers. And I'm going to force the Gentiles to acknowledge these are the first apostles and the first disciples. Listen to what they've got to say. Does that make sense? God's forcing the two groups together. And this becomes the turning point of church history. And watch what's about to happen in the book of Acts. The gospel's going to Europe and America and you're going to get saved. That's why God put this in the Bible. You say, well, see, there it is. But it's just one time. And it's one time because he's forcing Jew and Gentile together to open the doors for the gospel to go to the whole world. And we don't get what a big idea this is. I mean, what a big moment this was. Jews, even saved Jews, lived a racially segregated life. Good saved Jews, like Peter, lived a racially segregated life. And then all of a sudden, Gentiles are becoming followers of Jesus. And now this same person who one week ago you were not allowed to touch, this same person that a week ago you were not allowed to go into their home, this same person that a week ago you were not allowed to drink out of the same vessels or break bread together or eat a meal together, now overnight... God is saving these Gentiles and the Spirit is filling these Gentiles. And now overnight, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now the rules of the Jewish culture must give way and be demolished by the working of the Holy Spirit. Because now overnight, they're living together as brothers and sisters. Now they're sharing the gospel together. Now they're sharing their resources together. Now they're eating meals together. Now they're worshiping Jesus together. And this story is recorded because it shattered the cultural racism that existed and it replaced it with the working of the Spirit in the church. I think that's just such a beautiful story. This is why the rest, really the half of the New Testament now, is about Jews and Gentiles coming together as one One new people of God. We made such a big deal about Israel in in traditional circles. Israel's important, but you're the new Israel. Israel is an idea. It's called the people of God. A people who would have a heart for God. And in old Israel, just because you had an Israeli birth certificate didn't mean you had a heart for God. So the prophet said, God's going to do a new thing. Instead of circumcising you in the flesh, he's going to circumcise your heart. He's going to send his spirit to live within all kinds of people. And those people who have the spirit in their heart will have a heart for God because he'll help them follow God. He'll help them obey the law of God. He'll help them be the people of God. They'll be the new people of God. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the new people of God. You are the new Israel. You are the new temple of God. And what's beautiful about this is the Holy Spirit becomes our common denominator. And it's all possible because Jesus is not racist. He is amazing in his love for all of us. Now let me see if I can start tying this thing up. The Holy Spirit's still at work today. As for church history, in the Baptist tradition they said the Holy Spirit stopped working in this gifting way once the apostles died. That's just not a true reading of church history. 
It's false to say that the Holy Spirit has not been working in miraculous ways ever since the first century up till today. It's just not an accurate reading of church history. The Spirit of God has always been at work through prophecy, through tongues, through healing. I even believe through miracles, through gifting people, surely, to carry out the mission of God and to do whatever needs to be done to advance the gospel. In our world, listen real carefully right now. Don't tune this out because I want you to embrace this. In our world today, there are 644 million Pentecostals. Now, let me just give you something to compare that to. There's 300 million Americans. The population of America is 300 million, roughly. There's 644 million Pentecostals worldwide. That's a big group of people, okay? 644 million Pentecostals. It's growing. Pentecostalism charismatics, non-denom, etc. It's growing faster than any other Christian group in the world. It's true today. It's been true for years now. For tens of years, the Pentecost has been the fastest growing group in the world. Sounds like you're all for them, Pastor. I am. I am. I, I don't know why it is we have to hate another group. I am all for them. But let me just say this. I believe that the way they teach the baptism of the Spirit, because that phrase is not in the Bible, and how they teach a two-step process, which I don't see in the Bible, I I don't think that's correct. I think their teaching is incorrect. But here's what I want to ask you this morning. Are they really that wrong to have the Holy Spirit and to believe in prophecy and to believe in power to change lives? John MacArthur, one of the most conservative quoted people by Baptists, John MacArthur recently said that all charismatics are demonic. Well, John, that's not very Christ-like. See, we're trying to make the Holy Spirit a point of division, and by doing so, you've crossed the line. Holy Spirit's not a point of division. He's a point of unity for all of us. And even if somebody sees his working differently than you you want to be very cautious about being critical of holy spirit's work let let me just put it to you real frankly i've written it in my notes in a certain way and i want to ask the questions very frankly let me ask my baptist brothers and sisters is it your official position that more than 25 percent of global christians are demon possessed that's john MacArthur's position is it your position Is it your official position, or should it be the position of our church that more than 25% of global Christians are wrong because they believe the Holy Spirit is still supernaturally gifting people for ministry? I think that's a dangerous position. You see, in our world today, they estimate there are at least 3 billion people. There's only about 8.5 billion They estimate there's 3 billion people who have no access to the gospel, have never, some of them heard the name of Jesus, they have never heard the gospel one time in their life. More than 3 billion people. Most of them live across North Africa, India, Nepal, exactly where we're trying to get the gospel into. More than 3 billion people have no access to the gospel. To argue that we do not need the Holy Spirit of God to work in miraculous ways is completely out of touch with the present situation. We have billions of people who need the gospel and we're struggling to get the gospel to them. Churches don't have enough resources to get there. We can't get visas to get in there. We're facing all kinds of obstacles to get the gospel to the people who need the gospel. What, what planet are we living on that we think we don't need to cry out to the Holy Spirit of God for power and wisdom and gifts and skills and abilities to reach the lost who are perishing every day? Man, we have more ability to communicate, more platforms to communicate, more, more ways to share the gospel than ever, and yet we're not being as effective as we need to be. Listen, I think Holy Spirit could gift you to learn how to use technology. There's a spiritual gift some of us need to be praying for, amen? So we know how to put the Word of God out and how to put the gospel out. Let me close with this. I believe that the teaching of cessationism, which most of us grew up with, I believe the teaching of cessationism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what I believe. Let me explain this quickly. The sad thing about the Baptist teaching of cessationism is it becomes self-fulfilling among the Baptists. 
it, it, let me say it this way. If you don't believe in the work of the Spirit, the odds are you'll not see it in your church or life. That's how simple it is. If you don't believe in prophecy, then the odds are you'll never prophesy. You'll keep your mouth shut and won't share the God. Listen, if you don't believe in speaking in tongues, the odds are you're not going to speak in them. If you don't believe in seeing miracles, then why in the world would you ever pray for one? I mean, if you don't believe in healing, then what do you say to your friend who just found out they were diagnosed with cancer? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to go in the hospital room or I'm going to go meet in their living room and I'm going to take them by the hand and we're going to get down on our knees and we're going to say, God Almighty, we believe you can do anything. And God, if it's going to be your will to heal this brother or sister, then we pray for divine healing upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I may be a little out there, but I'm just telling you I think God can still heal people. And, and, and what I'm saying to you this morning is simply I, I just... I don't want to get so hung up in, well, we're Baptists or we're this or we're that, that our dogma begins to trump our belief in the Holy Spirit. Because living out the dogma of our religious tradition is not a substitute for living in the Spirit. And when people say, well, what are you? I want you to say I'm a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ before you start using other labels these days. Now, let me recap. I think the Pentecostals are wrong to call the baptism of the Spirit the baptism of the Spirit. Instead, I think we should be using the Bible language which says Jesus will baptize you in the Spirit. It's a little different twist. It's what the Bible says. And I think that happens at the moment of your salvation. In a perfect world, you get saved. Immediately, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the Spirit. Baptized in the Spirit. Immediately, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. And you belong to God. And He seals you. We'll talk about that next week. You belong to God, and then you get baptized in water as quick as possible. Now, some of you are delaying that, and I don't know why you're delaying that. Okay, we're going to baptize, help me, next Sunday? Next Sunday. Several people are getting baptized next Sunday. You need to be one of them. If you're dragging your feet on that, there's no need to drag your feet. Listen, you have received Christ. You've been filled with Spirit. Let's get baptized. You say, now what? Now start living for Jesus. And start making disciples and be disciples. All that stuff we talk about every week. The teaching of the baptism of the Spirit, as done in Pentecostalism, I think is faulty. But, I'm going to say this again. I want you to be very slow to criticize the Charismatics. I want you to be very slow to criticize the Pentecostals. These are your brothers and sisters, and this is still a family discussion. Is that fair? Now I want to read you, as I was studying, I ran across a quote from a really smart theologian out of Oxford. I want to read you this before I pray. And I want you to see what he said. He just basically said the same thing I said, but I want you to see it in his words. Simon Ponsonby from Oxford writes this. What is undeniable is that the Pentecostal movement and its charismatic siblings have known a vibrancy, an energy, and an attractiveness which has produced a record of missionary church growth unparalleled in two millennia. Flip it. They clearly have found or refound something or someone that was apparently lacking previously. Now, watch what else Simon says. The right doctrine in many of the evangelicals has not resulted in the right experience of intimacy and authority. You say, well, pastor, I was raised Baptist. We have the right doctrine. Then why don't you have the power of the Holy Spirit flooding your life? Where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where's your kindness and joy and love and graciousness and patience? Where are your good works? Where is the love that characterizes your life? All of that pessimistic gift of gossip and criticism is not compatible to a spirit-filled life. Amen? And that's not who we're going to be. Susan and I vow every day of our lives we get up and say we are not going to be crotchety, grumpy, old Christian people. We're going to be loving, gracious, spirit-filled people. And we pray that God will help keep that alive inside of us. Now, watch his concluding statement. He's saying... You may have, think you have the right doctrine, but where's your experience with Holy Spirit? Now watch the reverse of this. However, the wrong doctrine of the Pentecostals has not stopped them from having the right experience. 
I don't disagree with that. I agree with that. I don't think they're teaching this baptism of the Spirit right. But I'll tell you what they are. They're the fastest growing group of Christians in the world. And they're doing more missionary work than any group in the world. And their churches are on fire and alive. And you can't, you can't get enough chairs to, to put in the room to fill it with people going to these churches. And that can't be argued with. So you say, well, what's our stance? We're going to be exactly what we are. We're very unique here at Cornerstone. We're a mix of a bunch of different kind of people. We're basically Baptists, but not really. And we don't say that with anger or frustration. We're just saying some things need to be corrected, and this is one of them. I want you to experience Holy Spirit. And I want Him to transform your life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let me ask you a couple of questions, and we'll pray and move to our homes. I want you to reflect right now been several weeks of discussion about Holy Spirit working in your life and no doubt even as I'm talking about Baptists and Pentecostals and all these different teachings something's happening in your heart this morning where the Holy Spirit is either trying to awaken you to who he is and how he wants to work in your life or he's trying to correct some thing that's wrong maybe like this racist attitude or some wrong attitudes in your heart Whatever he's trying to do, I want you to partner with him right now. Don't resist him. Don't push back against him. Say to him in your heart right now, let me hear your voice with clarity, Holy Spirit, right now about the changes that need to happen in, in my heart and in my life. Let me ask you, first of all, you just answer in your head and in your heart, are you experiencing new life in the Spirit? Are you experiencing new life in the Spirit? Do you hear His voice? Is He teaching you new things about how to live in Christ? Are you being changed? Is love rising to overcome hate in your heart? see his fruit showing up at unexpected times in your life can you agree with brother James that good works are showing up to mark your life as one of the spirit can the personality of God be seen in your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday Saturday, Sunday and others see God in you. Here's what I'm going to ask you to pray right now. I'm going to ask you to pray to God and I'm going to say, ask you to say that Holy Spirit of God, I want to be open to you. Maybe I've had preconceived notions that are not correct and I just want to be open to you being who you truly are and me accepting that. God, whatever you want me to do, yes is my answer. I can't claim to have maybe the skills that are needed or the talents that are needed. But what I do have is willingness to yield myself to you. So my hands are yours. My feet are yours. My my muscles, my energy is yours. My mind is yours. My voice is yours. God, my, my talent is yours. And God, wherever I don't have what's necessary. I'm praying for your gifting to come upon my life. Help me to love children. Help me to be generous in my giving. Help me to be gracious to others. Lord, help me to love those I disagree with. God, help me to see what people can become and not just what they are right now. God, let me see with your eyes and act with your hands and love with your heart. Holy Spirit, I'm open to you having the dominant role in my life. You at the levers and the controls. I know that would be best. And forgive me for wrestling and fighting and pushing back, frustrating you. God, I confess that as sin and I give myself fully to you afresh this morning. I am yours. 
you are mine. And that's the way it should be. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. We'll go enjoy a beautiful, beautiful day that God has made for us to enjoy. Try to get some fresh air and stretch your legs a little bit today. Watch some good football and enjoy some of mom's pot roast and mashed potatoes. And just go enjoy your day. This is, you know what the scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. If I get lost, you just keep going. Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. God's people said, you're dismissed.